0: Welcome to episode 302 with my guest, Johanna. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to oh, a little trouble getting that word out, to, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm a bona fide jackass. And, uh, think of this more as a waiting room and not the doctor's office. If the waiting room was filled with a sad jackass, how could you be filled with one person? Oh, I'm already wanting to rewind, edit, delete. Moving forward. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Um, some of you have been confused about how to to access the Amazon portal, if you're going to shop at Amazon and uh, have them give us a little bit of money, uh, go to our homepage. You'll see a little Amazon logo in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that, and it takes you to our little uh, bookstore, which is uh, Amazon books that we uh, recommend, uh, books that either guests have written or that we like. Um, And at the very top left of that, is another Amazon logo, and if you just want to shop in general at Amazon, click on that, and that will take you to. Uh, it's it's not very obvious on the thing because it's so the logo is so small, but uh, I don't know how to change it. So go fuck yourself. That sound that seems like I lashed out you on unnecess- that. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> I'm a little shaky right now because a half hour ago, the Cubs won the World Series, and I'm from Chicago, and my entire lifetime, it's been a joke that the Cubs will never win the World Series. The last time they won the World Series was in 1908. There was no other sports team that comes even close to having the kind of championship drought that the Chicago Cubs have had, and it was... And I don't think I'm saying this because I'm just a uh Cub fan. I'm a bit of a fair weather Cub fan anyway, but it was the most dramatic up and down, nerve-wracking game ever. And it was a seventh game World Series that went into extra innings. The lead changed several times. It was it was unbelievable. And uh so I'm I'm just like I'm a shell of a human being, is what I'm telling you. Anyway, um, go to our website, mentalpod.com, and uh, you can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. They're totally anonymous. Use a nickname. Share all your deepest, darkest stuff um, and and your happiest uh, moments, your most fucked up moments. Um, On the website, you can also browse our forum, post questions there. A lot of times if you're looking for an episode that... uh, is about a specific topic uh there's two ways to find out uh one is use our search box on our website uh not to be confused with the amazon uh search box and um just type in a you know if you're looking for stories about bipolar type in bipolar um if you're looking for an argument about pop tarts type in pop tarts um And the other way is go to the forum and post uh, a question. There's uh, a lot of really nice people that uh, hang out in the forum and are familiar with the show and which episodes are which, and they can uh, generally point you in a better direction than I can because, uh, again, I'm a shell of a human being who is dead inside. Let's read some surveys. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself coffee and coffee. A snapshot from her life as she writes, when my parents first found out about my self-harm, my father said, you better cut that out real quick. That could turn into a real problem. They couldn't understand that it already was. Negative Nancy uh, writes about her depression, Uh, a bubble bath turning cold but being too tired to get out is a good one. About her anxiety, having a panic attack when I start thinking about my inevitable next panic attack. I hear that a lot from people that that deal with panic attacks. About her anorexia, counting my ribs and noting that the chub in between each one needs to go away now. About being a sex crime victim, being unsure if it counts because I never told anyone right after it happened. Um, I hope you know that that has nothing to do whether or not it counts, and and I hate the word counts when it comes to any kind of trauma because ultimately it what matters is how we feel about it um, because it for us to process that stuff you know it doesn't matter whether or not it's prosecutable what the other person's intent necessarily was that's how we felt about it. Um, <laughs> this person calls themselves Paul. Oh my God, I'm so in my head right now. Gil Martin. And uh, he writes about his codependency. Once you finally like me, I find you boring. When you inevitably leave me, I would kill to get you back. And about uh, his jealousy and rationalizing inappropriate thoughts, he writes, If you are uglier or fatter than me, it's because you have no self-control and your life is in shambles. If you're better looking or have a better physique than me, it's because you are vain and shallow. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh and uh, a woman who calls herself uh, the not nice Canadian struggles with uh, alcohol and a snapshot from her life. She writes, I gave my liver a name hoping that doing so would help me be nicer to it. It's not working. Olivia and I still hate each other. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm
1: inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness
0: I corresponded briefly with uh, when I was up in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. and you have, your parents are um, immigrants from Africa?
1: Yeah, so um, they're both from East Africa. My mom is from Eritrea, and my dad is half Ethiopian, half Eritrean, but he was mainly raised in Ethiopia. And because of the war that happened, they both ended up in the U.S., and then I ended up here. (laughs) And you're how old? I'm 25.
0: Okay. And you live up in the Bay Area. You're just down here uh, mm-hmm. visiting. Correct. Um, where would be... Uh, what What are some of the issues that you struggle with and some of the topics that you would like to to, to talk about? Um, one of the things I was saying to Johanna before we started rolling is, um, I can't read because I have such a terrible memory and I have so many conversations with so many different people going on at the same time. I often only remember, like, the biggest part of of somebody's story. So when I sit down to actually start recording them, I need them to refresh my memory on the the broad strokes. And I'm always a little bit embarrassed, but uh, I'm 900 years old and there you go. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: So some broad strokes of issues that you struggle with and things you'd like to talk about.
1: Yeah, so um, I definitely struggle because I'm East African. Um that culture is very conservative and then growing up in the Bay Area which is very liberal it there's a massive clash <laughs> just wow. right there alone and then as well as also the cultural difference within itself because as um so Eritrean Ethiopians refer to themselves as Habesha so as Can you a, spell that H A B E S H A
0: right now the the transcriber is going thank you paul
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad i can help the transcriber and Uh. so as habasha as a habasha woman um i'm supposed to be thought of as not having that much vanity always being very like wearing long sleeves not um trying to get the attention of men whereas within the u.s where pretty much sex and sexuality is everywhere you know Mm. it's that's very <laughs> conflicting.
0: Right. Yeah. Especially if your your parents still m- believe in the mores and yes, social codes they were they were raised with.
1: Oh, 100%. And as well as it also doesn't help that my mom was raised Catholic and my dad was also raised Catholic, but my dad sort of gave it up as he got older and went more towards the science field, but my mom She's one of those Catholics where they don't go to church every day, but whenever there's a big holiday, such as Christmas or Easter, they're the first ones in line.
0: They're Super Super Bowl Christians. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> and, get
0: it. I'm that way with sports. I won't watch a bear <laughs> game until, uh, until they're in the playoffs, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my team.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, yeah, Jesus coming to save us, and <laughs> they just get super fanatic, and yeah. it gets very, very intense during the holidays, as you can imagine.
0: So give me some examples of um, clashes, literal uh, issues that you and your parents have uh, fought about, or tensions have come up about in in your family regarding the, the differences.
1: Yeah, so one of the biggest one, and it's still, I'm, I've luckily have come to a lot of peace with it is the fact that I'm 75% Eritrean, 25% Ethiopian, and those two countries historically even till now they don't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> they really do not like each other. And so with, growing up in the household, I was only taught Tigrinya, which is the main language.
0: Spell that for me.
1: Tigrinya is T I hold on T I G R I N Y A, Tigrinya. Okay. And so because I would, and, sorry. <laughs> and, and,
0: and that's the uh, common language of both countries?
1: Mm-mm, only Eritrea. Okay. So Eritrea is the main country that speaks Tigrinya, and all throughout the house, there's mainly just references to Eritrea. There'll be the Eritrean flag will speak the language. I'm more identified with that because I grew up with that culture, and so I was never really able to identify an Ethiopian um, culture, which... To be fair, the cultures are extremely similar, but depending on the region, the language completely changes. Um, the style, like, it can be very, very different. And I'll start off with my mom's side of the story. So she was in Eritrea. Um, she she was born and raised in Asmara, which is A A S M A R A, and that's the capital of Eritrea. And the way that that situation was set up when the Ethiopians came in, they took over the capital. And so whenever she would go to school, they were never allowed um, to speak Tigrinya. They always had to speak Amharic, which is the dominant language in Ethiopia. And so it was becoming to the point- And I
0: imagine they weren't too thrilled about that. No.
1: And so it was becoming to the point where pretty much any Ethiopian soldier can do whatever they want. They could take the business without any repercussion. They can just easily shoot somebody without any repercussion. And so that's when my grandma decided to go ahead and send my mom. Uh, try to send her to the United States. The way that.
0: How old was your mom?
1: My mom was in her teens. And
0: this would have been roughly in what year?
1: Uh, let me think. It should have been in nineteen seventies. Okay. And so she she was sent out, um, and I. She told me it was about a week's. To one to two weeks walk from Eritrea to Sudan, um, and it was they went to the capital, which is Khartoum, and there the Red Cross and the refugee camp was already established. Once she made it to the Red Cross, that's how she was able to get into the United States. But she told me that she lost so many friends within the within the process of just walking from Asmara to Khartoum.
0: Yeah, uh, lost friends, as in they literally died, or she lost touch with them. Both. Okay.
1: Like um, she, there is this one area in Eritrea. I keep forgetting its name, but it's a river, and so they are walking during low tide. But then they, and towards the mountains, they saw um, the Ethiopian soldiers, so they had to hide out a little bit, and. By the time they were able to get out one by one, the high tide came in and took some of her friends, and they drowned.
0: I can't imagine what... what I can't imagine.
1: I know, and she would tell me these things, and then, of course, me being me, I'm just like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I never How? experienced anything like that.
0: What would her demeanor be like when she would share this with you? Would she get emotional, or is your mom kind of a uh, emotionally reserved?
1: She... She tends to get to be extremely emotionally reserved. The only time I would see her get emotional is when she would talk about my grandparents and how much she had to leave them behind and how when my grandpa did pass, how how much that affected her because she was never there to say goodbye. And pretty much the only time she was able to see him is once they... She was established here in the U.S. and got her green card. She was able to travel back and forth. But still, she very much missed being able to at least just say goodbye to him.
0: Did she want to try to bring them here, and they didn't want to, or they weren't able to?
1: Um, it was both. Okay. <laughs> um, my grand, my grandpa, for sure, Like he liked the U.S. He very much liked it. But by the time I was born, so I was born in 91, the war was over. And so, my grandparents didn't see the imminent threat of needing to come back over, but they still very much enjoyed the U.S., but they preferred the life back mm. in Eritrea. Yeah.
0: Um, And it sounds like your parents got out, too, before uh, the, the famine and the drought got
1: really bad? Correct. Yeah. They did. And so... Because that was in
0: the the 80s was when it was really bad. right? And that was particularly Ethiopia was uh, uh, Eritrea also uh, Mm. affected by
1: the. Yeah, so it was very affected. The thing is with Eritrea, we didn't have the drought as bad as Ethiopia, but we're such a small country that all of the resources was go- was driving towards the war so that's how a lot of people ended up suffering that way and that's why a lot of people wanted the war to stop and
0: so it wasn't just weather it was weather and political climate
1: correct okay and it's and the one of the things that i always find it very interesting is that a lot of people would naturally think like oh you're like if they put like an Ethiopian retreat together, like they would think they'll instantly clash. But in reality, a lot of people feel the very same way is that, oh, we need a change in government, <laughs> right. you know? And a lot of people did not find the war necessary, seeing that it's still going on right now. Well, not right now. They're, they have been having issues recently, but it's not it hasn't pu- pummeled itself into a full war.
0: It's more just tensions A lot of tension. Did Ethiopia get uh, the land back that, uh, or did Eritrea get the land back that Ethiopia claimed when they... Mm -mm. No.
1: Um, That's what they're still fighting about. Um, And they like, and so pretty much Eritrea is saying that, hey there's still a lot of ethiopian soldiers on this land like you guys need to leave and ethiopia would say something along the lines like okay we'll leave by blank date or they just will be like no we're not gonna go
0: and were they there for resources
1: um i don't even i'm not 100 percent sure why they're even there because there is no resources like it's mm-hmm. the border and on that particular land it's pretty much a desert so that's why everyone is just uh, me in particular. I don't understand why they're fighting.
0: <laughs> hmm. Is it access to the sea? That well,
1: could... that that was the main reason why uh-huh. Ethiopia invaded Eritrea and why Haile uh-huh. Selassie as well as Mengusta Haile Mariam. Uh-huh. That was the main reason why they wanted Eritrea was because we have two massive ports. Yeah. We have Massawa and we have uh, Aseb. And so from there, we can access everything.
0: My obsessive playing of civilization is now paying off. <laughs> I just <laughs> guessed the reason why somebody would have gone to war. Because if I if I owned a land, let's put it this way. I'm glad that I've never been put in the position of running a suffering country that is landlocked. Um, let 's just put it that way because i 've played enough civilization five to know exactly what to do to uh, um, to get what you need um in a way that isn 't nice
1: i'm i 'm very glad i 've never been in that position either, yeah, just because the consequences are extreme and in it 's intense
0: yeah um so let's get back to your family and you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for um, some of the background yeah, uh, of stuff of that. Um, so uh, remind me again, which parent is Eritrean and which parent is Ethiopian?
1: So my mom is fully Eritrean and my dad is half Ethiopian, half Eritrean.
0: Okay. Um, so, yeah, then it would make sense that uh, all the Eritrean stuff. Uh, am I pronouncing it
1: correctly? Eritrea, yeah.
0: Um and I was asking for you to give uh, examples of mm-hmm. uh, the clash between their the culture they grew up with and the culture that you are growing up in.
1: Yeah. So one of the biggest clashes that I always felt is that I had to strongly identify as an Eritrean. Like if I was taking any exam and they're like African-American or Hispanic and they'll say other. Like I was pretty much encouraged to mark other and write Eritrean American,
0: <laughs> even though Eritrea is uh, in Africa. African,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Why would that? Why would that be? Because African American is assumed. Oh, because, well, why your parents aren't uh, African Americans, but you are an African American.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest or or are
0: your parents considered African Americans?
1: They're. They consider themselves Africans, and then from time to time, they'll just say they're African-Americans just because they've been in the States for so long that Mm -hmm. they identify as that. But one of the biggest reasons growing up why I was highly encouraged to say Eritrean American, and it was always, well, there's two things. The first thing is that when my parents first came in the 70s and 80s, they were heavily discriminated against.
0: That's hard to believe. (laughs)
1: So they were heavily discriminated against by the African American community because something about like not going through the slave trade or not really being quote unquote African, you know, like what? not the African American. What, what the way that they explained it to me, and this is just my knowledge. Of course, mm-hmm. everyone else can can pretty much tell me differently because. Mm-hmm. I just know what they told me. And they told me that pretty much they were heavily discriminated against by the African-American community because the term African-American at that time meant that your family came through the slave trade. I see. And so because they were immigrants, that didn't apply to them.
0: So, these people uh, who criticized your parents took exception to them adding American to their name. Correct. And th- thought, no, you're African. You're not African-American. Exactly. I see. Well, my- I can understand their point, but does it really matter?
1: No. Well... I personally I identify as African American cuz that's what I am right. now and I can I feel very proud that I can say I'm African American or even more like Ethiopian Eritrean American which is a mouthful yeah. <laughs> in yeah. itself but so that's that's why they very much wanted me to identify and my
0: was it that they were afraid that you were going to run into that same thing too or that this was their chance to go um she's a, a, you know, a a valid African-American, you fuckers. I mean, it's (laughs) it's a
1: mixture of both, actually. Yeah, that's definitely it. And also because of the fact that because they're immigrants, there was so much fear that I would forget the culture, you know, because now I'm in the U.S. and it's Oakland during the 90s. So they were very much like, oh, this is completely different. We don't even know what this will they now they know but the education system was completely different from what they were growing up with mm-hmm. you know and my dad loves to criticize how much that in the US there is no geography <laughs> you know so and he's
0: she's not wrong <laughs>
1: <laughs> cuz like whenever we would drive to school like he made a very big note on trying to teach us that and he was just like I don't understand why this country does not teach you this and so it was that element of just being one in a completely foreign land with your children, having, feeling discrimination, and then also on top of that, really wanting to preserve the culture, that that's why they were super like, no, you are Eritrean, like, this is what you are. But the part of me that always felt extremely conflicted was that I was never allowed to identify with the other part of me, which is Ethiopian and that 's where the conflict is <laughs>
0: talk about that what parts of Ethiopia do you want to embrace, but find yourself um, afraid to fully
1: it 's not the part of me that i 'm afraid to accept it is while growing up, I was never allowed i see to accept it and in,
0: in what way specifically
1: if i if pretty much if anybody came up to me and they asked what my nationality was. I was, I always had to say I'm Eritrean or I'm Eritrean American. And I was never really encouraged or allowed to say I'm Ethiopian Eritrean American. Um, I went to school in Oakland. And I was pretty much the only East African child there. And so when I walked in there and I'm like, oh, I'm Mary Chien, You know, they're like,
0: what? what?
1: Yeah, exactly. They're like, what is
0: that? Uh, you saw Black Hawk Down? Just go there and hang a left.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: right? I mean, it's a, it's a horn. they're both the Horn of Africa, right?
1: They are. Yeah. yeah. And so... And that
0: was Somalia, the word Black Hawk Down
1: took yes, place. Yeah. That was Somalia. Yeah. And so when... Throughout school, by all of my, like, African-American friends, I would be called an Ario because they, of course, like I have, I'm black, but then because my parents are refugees they and they really wanted me to blend in. At the same time, they really wanted me to hold on to the Eritrean culture. So I had to speak very, very proper English. My mannerism had to be 100%, you know. So they that's why they, by them I would be considered an Oreo and because I would be, present myself and be act very proper, which mm. within itself that that's very irritating <laughs> oh
0: and i imagine uh kids accused you of being stuck up or uh what arrogant or what i mean
1: i would be i wouldn't be considered stuck up i would just be called like a teacher's pet that was the I biggest nerdy yes very okay. very nerdy and i've never and a lot of the bullies with even themselves they had a lot of trouble like classifying me besides like just being like a little nerd (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know because it's like i didn't find fall under any of the categories because a lot of the categories that they tried to put me in is like oh like maybe you are african but yet in their heads they would think like oh african woman is very very strong very independent very loud like she can command the whole room and i'm very quiet and very timid And that's not my mannerism at all. So they just sort of look at me like, what are you?
0: Do you feel like the way that you've grown up to express yourself is reflective of who you are inside? Or do you feel like some part of you has been damped down?
1: Um, I definitely feel like now I'm beginning to express that just because of when i was a child and i would try to figure out well okay well what am i how is the correct way to even identify with myself i could never figure it out and the thing is within my family particular, particular little, ah, particularly <laughs> sorry <laughs> um they had this notion that we had to always present ourselves as one big happy family no matter what, so
0: well, your family is now officially American, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I guess I can run home and tell yeah. them we're officially american <laughs> you're,
0: you're in you know the secret the secret knock, but go ahead, I cut you off
1: <laughs> no, that's fine, so because of that, because I always had to present myself as always happy and charming and very polite and, you know, and always tried to be on good graces with everyone. One, it turned me into a massive people pleaser. And two, it made me wear this mask where I'm always happy. I'm always calm. Like, I'm just very laid back, easy to go in person, you know, and which was very, very problematic uh, when I, as I started getting older.
0: <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's, let's hear some of it. Um Was there rage? In there?
1: A lot of rage because pretty much I was holding back every single feeling that I can possibly feel to the point where when I would actually let myself feel something, I had no idea what the hell I was feeling. I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> you know, and I it was
0: very much know that <laughs> that feeling. <laughs> it's it, it blindsides you. And, yeah. and you are just you just know it's intense. Whatever it is you're feeling, you just know it's intense and you don't know how to describe what it is.
1: Yeah, and I would pretty much, I would, the way that I felt it was I'll just be walking around and then suddenly I just feel like I just want to curl up and cry and I have no idea why I want to cry and I'm feeling like 10 million emotions and it's usually, of course, in a public setting <laughs> or like at my work and it's like I have no idea what's going on.
0: And when did the, when's the earliest time you remember being blindsided by emotions you didn't understand?
1: The earliest was around nine.
0: And, and you remember? Give me all the details that you can remember about it.
1: So pretty much, it was when my family was all over. And as an um, I'm the youngest of my family.
0: What do you and mean your family was all over?
1: So my whole not of course oh, not.
0: all over here yeah okay no. i didn't know if you meant all over like done we were you know
1: <laughs> no sorry I'm, i should clarify so my family came over um for i believe it was thanksgiving so they were all over at my house that's what mm-hmm. i meant to say I see. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were setting up and as a um eritrean girl The youngest one has to be pretty much the host. I have to go around, ask anybody if they need anything, um, present them with coffee, and just sort of check in on them, you know? So I'm like, my mom's, of course, the main host, but I'm the mini host, you know? And pretty much if anybody needed anything or wants anything, they would ask me. And I remember seeing my brothers and cousins just running around and playing, and yet here I was, like offering people coffee and just being like, I don't want to do this. Like, I really don't want to do this. And I just remember feeling that anger. And I turned to my mom and I asked her, "Like, can I go outside and play? And she was like, no, you cannot. And that just drove me internally insane. And of course, it it's very, very long party. So it lasts a couple hours. And I just remember just doing that and just feeling just rage
0: what if you could have said what you wanted to her without consequences what would you have said
1: i probably wouldn't have said anything i probably just would have slammed the tray down and just walked out and played with my siblings because i at that time i was just like this is a stupid notion because in american culture the elder sibling has all the responsibility, but in Eritrean culture, they very much value respect your elders. It's like one of the golden rules. So therefore, since I'm the youngest one, I have to pretty much listen to everybody.
0: And, and I'm just going to take a wild guess that a lot of time your answer that you got from them was because I'm your parent yep. and you are to respect
1: Yeah, it's me. E- it's, it wasn't, it was even as general as because I'm older than you. Like, cause my, there were so many times where my mom would tell my sister, oh, do blank, like do the dishes, mop the floor. And my sister would just turn to me and be like, you're doing it. <laughs> and then just walk away.
0: <laughs> Give me some other examples where, um, you have been blindsided by, um, an emotion that you couldn't express.
1: Um, there was one in particular um this was so i have two learning disabilities um math and reading and it was after i got diagnosed so i got i went to a therapist and got diagnosed with it when i first went into college um because i've pretty much all throughout high school i was just like there's something off i learn very differently and i realized and I went and I got tested. they were like, "Yeah, you have two learning disabilities. That's why."
0: Are they? Do they have specific names? Oh um, no, are? they just okay.
1: told me that pretty much you have two learning disabilities. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, "One's reading, one's math." And I was like, "That explains my whole education <laughs> career."
0: <laughs> so, is it the processing of those th- that information? Is it? Describe to me what it is in particular about those things. Is it the retention of it? Is it the absorbing of it? Um, But what what in particular?
1: Well, with me, it's pretty much the being able to absorb it. Because once I get it, I get it. Like, I fully understand. But somebody can come up to me and be like, oh, three plus one is four. And then if I see it switch, like one plus three, and they'll be like, oh, what is that? I'll be like, wait a minute. Hold on. that's yeah. switched. <laughs> and I'll just have to sit there and really think about it.
0: I see. So, oh, so do you do you have a photographic memory? Are you are I, you very visually oriented?
1: I am extremely visually oriented. Yes. Yeah.
0: That makes sense then. <laughs> Cuz it, it sounds like you take things in through through your eyes and then kind of just file it away as a picture.
1: Yeah. And and so like of course like all throughout school like Sometimes like they'll be writing really fast on the chalkboard or I'll just say it. And I just stare at them like, what are you saying? (laughs) Like, I don't understand. And I remember after I got diagnosed um, that I I was just so relieved because I was like, now I finally have a name for it. And I was just so happy. And I ran around and I told everybody and my family pretty much told me, you cannot tell anybody. And they told me to shut it down, be quiet. You do not have two learning disabilities.
0: Wow. But well, do you remember what you felt when they said that?
1: I, well, now I can recognize what I felt. Um, but during the time when they told me that, I just felt this immense pain in my stomach that then started to grow to my chest. And I remembered for a quick second, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't figure out why. And I just remember being like, okay, I need to calm myself down. I don't understand what's happening. And I just felt panicked and very scared and mainly confused. I was so extremely confused because I had no idea what was happening. And finally, once I was able to talk myself down from it, I reached out to my dad and I was like, why can't I tell anybody? Like, I don't have any shame. About this whatsoever like I can wear a shirt that says it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know I'm very proud of it and he pretty much told me that they weren't they were not proud of it so therefore I could not be proud of it and which goes back into the culture of pretty much any disability within that culture especially my mom she's the main person who heavily looks down upon disabilities
0: What's that like, being around a mom that, that looks down on people with disabilities?
1: It's, it's very, very painful. It's painful and very confusing because there's always going to be this part of me she's never going to accept, and there's always going to be a part of me that if I you know, take exam and I talk to her how frustrating it is, she won't understand, she won't hear me. And so that's where a lot of the pain lies in. But it's also even more painful because my brother and my sister, they're visually and hearing impaired. So that's how, from the very beginning, I always knew she wasn't very accepting of it.
0: Your brother and your sister mm-hmm. are both yes. hearing and
1: visually vis- vision
0: impaired mm-hmm. To to what degree? Mildly, severely, completely?
1: My brother is pretty much almost completely my sister is like severe mildly and then i have the most sight and hearing like i luckily i only need glasses and i can hear totally fine so i have the most out of the three of us but and there
0: are in what age range are are
1: yeah so my sister is three years older than me and then my brother is about six years older than me okay six to eight yeah Sorry, I always forget his birthday, and everyone tells me a completely different date.
0: <laughs> they need to write it down so you can picture it.
1: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um,
0: I have to have things spelled out uh, f- for me to uh, uh, deposit it in my brain because uh, the sound of something a lot of times doesn't,
1: yeah, doesn't same do here. it. Yeah, yeah, because I just need, I either need to visualize it or I'll physically have to write it out.
0: Yeah. Um, that's that. That is so painful that your mom looks down on the very thing that she should be the most em- most empathic person in your life well, around these things.
1: Yeah, and... And that- yet
0: she's the person who is giving you the least amount of empathy, at least in your immediate world.
1: Yeah, and it... So growing up... I was pretty much one of the main caretakers for my siblings and it was very, I was very much very taught to always watch over them. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like even though I'm the youngest one, I have a lot of like quote unquote parental supervision over them. And that always led a lot of tension in very particular with me and my sister because she's older than me. (laughs) And, you know, of course, older sisters don't want their younger sister telling them what to do or anything along those lines. And I was, because of my sight and my hearing, I was sort of seen as the quote-unquote golden child. But then once I got into school... And I started going through elementary and then middle school. That's when it became very apparent that I had a learning disability. And my sister is one of the smartest people I've ever known in my life. She always had straight A's. She's valedictorian on everything. So that's how it shift from her, from me being the golden child, to her being the golden child. But yet there was always this tug and pull between us that my in a lot of ways, I feel like my mom like definitely helped foster it.
0: Yeah, that, that was her. Uh, she sounds very results driven, and it doesn't really matter what you're feeling as long as you get to the finish line.
1: It's I Actually, every time I've ever tried to talk about anything emotional with her, it's always been shut down. And I can only ima- remember one time I've ever gotten a hug from her.
0: I'm so sorry. That really sucks.
1: It does. It really definitely does suck. And it wasn't until I went through therapy that I realized that she was a narcissist Yeah. (laughs) and that definitely helped a lot realizing like, Oh, like that's why I'm never going to get any emotional connection with her. It's because she is a narcissist.
0: Yeah. And if I keep looking to her to be validated, at least, um, uh, On a consistent basis, um, I'm going to drive myself crazy. You know, I I think the biggest mind fuck too can be the the parent that gives the praise and then takes it away, and that that gaslighting of it. it, She does
1: that all the time, and one of the biggest ones, of course, with me having my not having, you know. Sorry, being able to see and hear, and my sister not. And my sister being s- very academically gifted, and me totally not. So
0: how does your sister learn? Does she use Braille?
1: Yes. She okay. used Braille. Um, she used a large print. She used Zoom text. There was also another um, CCTV that she used. So there was a lot of different programs that she used.
0: Uh-huh. And is she able to speak? Mm-hmm. Um, is she able with a hearing aid able to hear?
1: Um, she doesn't like hearing aids. She uh-huh. said so. Her hearing and her sight—it's more on a nerve is damaged. So with her hearing, it's more of the frequency and the tone. Apparently, my tone she can hear a lot better than somebody who has a lot deeper tone. I see. So it's that's why she doesn't really like hearing aids because she feels like it just amplifies it and it's. I see and it doesn't really help her that way. Yeah.
0: Well, if I was around her and I wanted to talk shit about her, I would go your sister's a piece of work.
1: Yeah, you could. And she,
0: wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't hear her.
1: Exactly. You she can didn't even definitely
0: fucking, <laughs> didn't even fucking know him. Uh mean DJ voice would be able to get away with murder talking shit about yeah, her. Yeah, she definitely would. <laughs> um, and your brother, uh he is more severely uh impaired Correct. than your sister. Mm-hmm. And is he able to speak?
1: Yes, he can speak, but his is, um, it's harder for him. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much for him, since he can't fully hear himself, there's, it's always slightly off, mm-hmm. uh, like volume wise. I see. Um, but no, th- they're, they're both able to speak.
0: Is your, when your mom would be out in public with particularly your brother and your sister, Mm-hmm. I have to imagine if she's as narcissistic as she sounds, she had to have been on pins and needles worrying about what other people thought.
1: Yeah, all the time. Her. All she the time. She must have just
0: snapped constantly.
1: Yeah, a lot. And it, it was to the point where she didn't really want to be seen with my brother because he was obviously the most obvious. And she liked... Taking me out in public. And at first, I never understood that. Oh, I that's thought, why
0: you were the golden child. Yeah,
1: I thought I was like, oh, I get to spend time with my mom, you know? And I was like, yay. And I just love the affection. But it wasn't until my sister started pointing it out and having a lot of resentment towards me that it clicked in my head what was really going on.
0: That you were a thing for her to show.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and she it was pretty much my dad who went to pretty much all of the parent-teacher conferences for my siblings, and he was the one who would always make sure that they were okay. My mom very much did not like that at all.
0: Didn't like the event or that your dad was
1: going? Um, She didn't like the events um, in particular. She went to a few, but... I remember very much growing up, she didn't like going to parent-teacher conferences. Um, she didn't like going out that much in public. She only went when she had to. And so it was just very confusing because as a child, I didn't know that that what it was. Mm-hmm. I just thought I was like, oh, how come we're not taking like my brother or my sister? <laughs> you know,
0: if you could be, I don't know. 12 years old again, and say something to your mom, what what would you say to her? Um, or you pick an age that you would
1: say sure, something. No, 12 is a, definitely a good age because I, I was very aware mm-hmm. of what was happening. I didn't have a title or a name for it, but I was definitely aware that something was extremely off. And actually, that's very funny you picked 12, because 12 was pretty much the time where my parents were talking very much about the marriage and the divorce. They always threatened to have a divorce um, consistently, on and off, on and off, but they never got a divorce. And I remember when I was actually 12, I pretty much looked at them and I was like, when are you going to get a divorce?
0: (laughs) How was that received?
1: Um. It was very weirdly received because she flipped it on me. It was, which totally shocked me. <laughs> Cause she was like, w- Cause I asked her, when are you going to get a divorce? And she was like, why do you want us to get a divorce? And I was just like, uh, no, I'm just asking. And she was like, well, why are you asking? Do you want one? Do you not like this family? And it was, wow. w- yeah. And it was that type of question that, of course, Holy Ormley was like, okay, we- we're backing down now. <laughs>
0: Wow. What, what if, other than, you know, when are you going to get a divorce? What are what are some other things you would have liked to have said?
1: I would have liked to ask her why she praised me and yet belittled me the way that she did, because also when I was twelve. No, it started actually closer when I was eight. That's when she really started body shaming me, and so pretty much my mom has always been on a diet for as long as I can remember. She's always been on a diet.
0: And is that something that is common in no and in, in mm. East Africa? I mean, I would think that that's like no. where, where food is
1: yeah, so scarce. It's, it's pretty much it was her, um, and it's that. Was she
0: that way before she came here? I can't
1: imagine she would have been. I have no idea Uh, because she doesn't like talking about the past very much, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I can understand. But growing up, I just know for a fact that she was always on some sort of diet and growing up, she would always make references to my body like, oh, you have really big thighs or, you know, you're getting a little chunky around the stomach, you know, and that made me feel, of course, very insecure. And that's when the emotional eating started. (laughs) Talk about that. Um, So pretty much she started the body shaming uh, very much around eight or nine. And whenever any of my family would come over, she would say it around them. And she would say it in a very sly way. Like she'll say, let's pretend like there's cake. And so I would ask for a second slice and she'll say something along the lines like, oh, do you really need that second slice? Are you okay? Can you really handle that second slice? You know, implying like I'm going to gain weight. And of course, when my... My relatives, not really knowing the whole backstory, (laughs) would just be like, would just say something along the lines of like, no, of course, nobody really needs a second slice. You eat the second slice for the taste, (laughs) 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 you know? And so it was always just really confusing and really awkward. And I always felt like I was playing extreme mental game against her and I could could just never win. And it drove me insane.
0: I just thought of it. most horrible thing you could have said to her in that moment
1: <laughs> you can say it you
0: could have said you couldn't handle a second kid but you had one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, i should have said that that would have been amazing i mean she would have lost her mind but that would have been great
0: you know what i i don't want to um i don't want to belittle uh your mom or people like your mom because I know deep down inside this is probably caused by some type of trauma or something genetic and sh- and there's probably a lot of this is beyond her control. Um, I know and
1: I'm- and that's ahead. the part that just makes me so extremely depressed is because so many times I've asked her if she wanted to go to therapy or anything along those lines and of course she thinks therapy is a waste of time. <laughs> but it just really hurts me because I know there's a strong possibility she may never change and she's just going to be set like that and to How see How old is she now? She is 52. Okay. Mhm. And it makes me sad because that means that There's, she's probably going to die like that in all these beliefs when I really want her, like she's my mom. I really want her to get better.
0: You're a listener. You know how much I identify with that. (laughs) It is, I was just thinking today that it is a pain that I don't think ever fully goes away. I was just, I was just today thinking that very same thing that it hurts. It hurts my heart that I will never be able to connect with my mom.
1: No, I definitely feel that. And I feel that on a daily basis as well. And it just really, because I'm in therapy and so badly, I would just love to have family therapy and sit down and talk to them and talk to them about everything that I'm talking about now. And yet I know I can never do that. And that really, really makes me want to break down and cry. Have you ever? I have a couple of times, um, but pretty much me being the slightly control freak and not really knowing my emotions, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can definitely use more crying. And I don't like to express that side of myself because, of course, my dad um, pretty much grew, raised me in the sense of crying is a sign of weakness. So I don't even really allow myself to cry until I can't bear it. <laughs>
0: We got so much work to do. <laughs> we got so much work to do as a world. As a country, as a world. It, it, as individuals, you know, there is so much work to do.
1: Yeah, everywhere. It's it's I mean mental illness like everywhere it's just insane how nobody one wants to talk about it, but yet the patterns keep going on and on and on and on.
0: I mean, even if we took the social stigma and prejudices of it away, there's still the just the raw genetic component of mental illness that that is its own mountain. Talk about other issues um, that you. How are you with your your uh, body image today? Have you have you helped um, kind of silence that voice in your head that your mom?
1: Yeah, put so there? I've been pretty much I went to a couple of, well, for at first I thought I was just like a bench eater or a really strong emotional eater, and I just didn't know what kind of eating disorder that I had, but I knew that my relationship with food was extremely unhealthy. And by unhealthy, I mean um, I would walk around and I would go to like Um, downtown Berkeley for example where there's lots of different shops and different places to eat and I could never make up what I wanted to eat and I would walk around that whole area for two hours straight then finally decide on going into like a CVS and buying the most unhealthiest things to eat and decide that that will be my dinner
0: (laughs) wow I'm so fascinated by that it's like what, what do you think that is like perfectionism and self abuse or what
1: it's it's a lot of it is also self-abuse and because it's like, oh, look, there's like this very healthy restaurant and with like really great food, but you're never going to eat there. You, you're unworthy of it. What you're worthy of is just the crap that's at, you know, Walgreens or CVS.
0: <laughs> well, I, and the, the irony is you truly are in the health food capital of the world.
1: I know, and it's it's ridiculous, because it's like, if I wanted to be like, oh, I want to go to, like, a vegan restaurant today, there's, like, millions of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or at least America, Berkeley is is the (laughs) health food capital of... uh, Anyway, Um, so do you still do that?
1: Now, I've... Well, with therapy, I pretty much stopped that, and... Because now I've realized where that was coming from, because before... I would do that and I would just not understand why. And another thing I just realized right now that I didn't mention is that um, I would also eat food that I know would cause me pain. So for a long period of my time of my life, I was a vegetarian. So if I eat any beef or anything like that, it would deeply upset my stomach. So for me, like I would go around, walk two hours Aimlessly, and then buy the crappiest and greasiest burger that I can find, knowing that that's going to upset my stomach and cause me a lot of pain.
0: That is fascinating. And what would the payoff be? You know, like every addiction, there's a window of it that you live for. That's the payoff. Well, that What, what what describe the the moment when. You are like this. Is this is what I'm getting from this?
1: It the is it payoff,
0: laying there in pain.
1: No, it was. It would be knowing that. Well, these types of foods were the foods that my mom would ex- would just go mad about and lecture me for hours and hours and say like, if I eat this, I'm going to turn into a whale. Not actually, but I like see. blow up like a whale. And so it's that having just being super rebellious and just being able, like, yes, I can eat this. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to gain, like, 50 pounds just from this one burger.
0: So you're kind of slapping your mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, but in the but at the end result, I'm hurting myself. <laughs> you're slapping yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was like, it's a very toxic cycle that luckily I'm getting more control over.
0: When was the last time you did it?
1: The last time I did that, I want to say, was about four months ago. And so I feel very proud of myself that I haven't done that since.
0: Would you, in anticipating going and doing that thing, um, well, let me ask you this. Would there be a rumination and a kind of an uh, adrenaline high thinking about doing that? Or was it just something that you would just instantly do impulsively and there was no uh, rush from it?
1: There was no rush from it. The only rush I got was once I physically had it in my hand. Okay. Like, once I physically had it, I was just like, ha, yes. Now, like, who, like, it's almost taking control over the situation. But in reality, I'm really hurting myself.
0: Right. But in that moment. Yeah, in have, that moment. You have, for a visual person, you have that visual thing. Yeah. And yeah, here's my power right here. Fuck you, mom.
1: Exactly. And it was amazing for, like, and I loved that tiny little moment. And, of course, afterwards, I just feel horrible. But in that small moment, I was just like, yes, like you have your words mean absolutely nothing to me. Wow.
0: Wow. Isn't it crazy the things we do to to just get a sliver of feeling powerful and safe?
1: It's it's really insane. And it wasn't until. I sat down with my therapist and actually talked about it that I realized I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's when you woke up to the fact that that's what it was about.
1: Yeah, that's when I really understood what it was about, because prior to that, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, because I walk around and do that and I wouldn't fully comprehend why I was doing it. And the thing is, it will happen at least once a month. So I'll just be like, oh, that was weird, and I'll forget about it.
0: (laughs) And and it it doesn't sound like it was something you even enjoyed the taste of.
1: No. It was all foods that I actually don't really care for or don't even really like. Wow.
0: So what are uh, some other things about your uh, food or uh, body image issues uh, you want to talk about or or any other issues you want to talk about? uh, Depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, what any of those uh, things you struggle with?
1: Yes, I definitely struggle with depression and a lot of anxiety. <laughs> like just both of them hand in hand. <laughs>
0: okay. Give me a snapshot of your life.
1: Um, so a snapshot of my life would pretty much be when I was 6 years old and I would hear my parents screaming and fighting. And I would try to pretty much stop the screaming and fighting and do everything that I can to control the whole situation. And it wasn't until I realized that, one, I was also trying to control the whole situation, but also one of the main things that was really making me try to do this was my anxiety and just wanting to calm everything down and make sure that, of course, because I always felt like I was the parent to my sibling, make sure that they were okay. And because i have I always felt that type of protectedness towards them, whenever I would see my parents arguing or whenever I would see anybody bully any of my siblings, I would want to just jump in the line mm-hmm. of fire and just try to control everything, thus making me a super perfectionist <laughs> and also a massive people pleaser
0: yeah and and I think too then, if you're busy worrying about other people, you don't have to feel.
1: Yeah, 100%. I didn't have to feel anything. And it wasn't until I really sat down and thought about it. I was like, Oh, when did I actually start feeling depression? Because I knew from the beginning where the anxiety was like that I knew from the start. But it wasn't until I really thought about it. And I was just like, Oh, ER was like my favorite Character that alone should say like, mm. oh yeah, I was a really depressed kid.
0: Uh, which character?
1: Eeyore from Winnie oh, the Pooh. right, right. yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. My favorite. Uh, this is you're too young for this, but my favorite uh, sweat hog on Welcome Back, Cotter was Horseshack, and my wife still to, to this day is in disbelief that that would be anybody's favorite character from that show. He was like the nerdiest, the weirdest, the most physically unattractive, and I don't know, maybe I saw myself in him or something. That but
1: sounds like somebody I would totally love. Yeah.
0: yeah, I just, I was obsessed with him. Loved, loved him. Um, so talk about uh, the, the depression when you remember feeling like something is something is off
1: yeah so that started um, going early back Um, that feeling really started it would I would always feel it after the fights would and everything would settle down and just feeling um, like one nobody heard me and there's one fight in particular that I had with my mom And I remember going into the bedroom and writing a letter word for word of everything that happened. But I remembered I changed the ending and I wrote, oh, my mom understood. She smiled and she gave me a hug and she said everything was okay." And I remember I handed that to her and I was I told her like, hey, I wrote this story. Do you want to read it? And it took her about a week to actually read it. And even when she did read it. She didn't acknowledge anything of it. It was pretty much useless.
0: That is so heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. It, it really is. And that feeling always stuck with me. And I never knew what that was. But just all I remember as a child. Is just. I would feel intense. Rage, And I would just want to always scream. And I never knew that was because I really just wanted somebody to hear me. And I really did not want to feel like I had to be control over anything because I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so that that feeling of just feeling overwhelmed and not understanding everything and not being heard... I remember a lot of times I would just lay in bed and just stare at the ceiling and not know what's happening. So that also had a lot of confusion as well.
0: Is intimacy with people.
1: I'm terrified. I was just going to (laughs) say,
0: I mean, the template for intimacy in your house was a horror show.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm terrified of intimacy. It's, Who's oh. the f-
0: who's the first person in your life that you thought I know I can trust this person? Has there been anyone?
1: Um it's my best friend actually. Um talk up, talk about them. She it's very strange because we have a very similar upbringing and that's how we really connected was because she's Ethiopian. And so we at first we connected I was like, "Oh, you're Ethiopian. I'm Eritrean," you know, cuz that was also during the time where I was wasn't really able to identify as mm. Ethiopian Eritrean and so we would, we connected on that and it wasn't until we started digging deeper that I realized I was like oh I can actually trust this person I don't have to pretend and that I'm wearing a mask all the time you know and it wasn't until she slowly started opening up to me that I slowly started opening up to her and that's how that friendship was built but pretty much with anybody else, like even right now at my work, I'm still have this slight anxiety. Like if I'm my quote unquote true self, like everyone would think I'm a freak and just immediately fire me.
0: What, what, what is uh, freaky
1: about you? I don't know. Like, that's the part that also confuses me. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I'm, 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 I'm a freak she, and like I'm just she, a total she, weirdo because I've been screamed that all throughout my life that's like, oh, you're so weird, like, you know, that I just slightly identify with that. But even though when I really think about it, I'm like, what, what makes me weird? And I always try to ask people, like, what makes me weird? Like, how am I a weirdo? And of course, they, they don't really have an answer. But at the same time, that it's still there. It's still heavily implanted.
0: I mean, it makes sense to me that you would feel that way, but it's just always blows my mind when I meet somebody who's, who on the outside is very well adjusted and, uh, and they think that they're a freak, but I, I get it. I get it. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to, um, it's hard to watch people hate themselves.
1: Yeah, and I'd never realized that I actually hated myself until I went into therapy. Because cause part of my mask is being like super confident and loving myself, and I have like this great group of friends, you know, and just being super positive. And of course, none of that was true. Like, all the people that was in my group of friends were pretty much had very strong narcissistic tendencies because, you know, that's who I attract. <laughs> <is> <laughs> narcissists. There's people with strong narcissistic tendencies. People
0: that w- want to be fixed.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I love fixing people. Like, that is my strong point. <laughs> and so, of course, we were like a very toxic yet perfect match. <laughs> and so... Oh, I got slightly derailed. Oh, so it wasn't until... My therapist started really poking at that mask. So I was like, oh, I really don't like myself, and I don't like that I don't know who I am. And I feel extremely insecure about not fully knowing who I am. And therefore, that also brings in the self-loathing.
0: Like I'm a fraud.
1: Yeah. and it's, And
0: it's hard to respect other people that love you when you feel like you're a fraud, because then you just think, well, you're dumb.
1: Yeah. And... At the same time, I also care about those people. So it feels like I'm manipulating them. I'm lying to them. And I just want to sit there and just sit them down and be like, this is who I really am. But at the same time, I'm so scared that they won't accept me. Or if they find out who I really am, they'll just be like, oh, you are a freak. And they'll just kick me out of their life completely.
0: Wouldn't it be great if in 10, 20 years, the the kind of conversations that are really common would be somebody saying to another person, I'm terrified of being judged. Um, I'm terrified that I'm a fraud and I'm really uncomfortable right now because you um, just told me that you like me as a friend and um, and I don't know what to do and I just want to cry.
1: That would be amazing. And I feel like if I grew up with at least just hearing that that would just definitely have affected me positively because I'm like, "Oh, I can actually speak about my emotions. Like I don't have to bottle them and then they'll just magically just burst and I have no idea what's happening." It's like, "What? I can actually address it?"
0: <laughs> what are give me the greatest hits of negative self-talk?
1: Um, pretty much you're a failure. Every little thing that your parents have told you is correct as in you are never going to amount to um going to grad school or going to vet school you're always going to live in their house because currently i'm living with them Mm -hmm. so that within itself is a (laughs) stress stressful um i'm pretty much never going to get married that's also a very stressful topic um
0: because you do want to get married
1: i'm terrified of intimacy but then at the same time I would. I do want another person, so it's extremely conflicting.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wish I had some advice on that one, but <laughs> I, I can't. I can't put any uh, any fucking sprinkles on that. That's, yeah,
1: neither, neither can I. It's yeah. just I'm intimacy
0: op- is terrifying.
1: Yeah, it's, I
0: do know with work it gets easier.
1: That's why I've been told. And
0: if both parties are committed to trying to see their part in it. And where they can improve, the chances are awesome. But the when only one person's working on it, it can't, can't do it. It's like, you know, trying to, one person trying to jump rope with one hand. It's,
1: uh. That I, sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and hence why it's like, yeah, let's just not do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what the part of my brain is like, let's just not even work with intimacy.
0: Uh, okay. So, uh, give me some, uh, uh other of the greatest hits of, uh,
1: um, that you pretty much are a fraud, that that mask is actually really you, and you have lied to every single person you have ever loved and ever was dear to your heart, and once they truly find out, then they won't accept you. Um, That's a big one. Um, Another big one is also that you will, of course, amount to nothing, that no matter how hard you try academically, because due to your learning disabilities, you just won't never make it. Like the whole system is rigged against you, so therefore you might as well stop now.
0: Talk about that some more. And, and you uh, want to become a veterinarian? Mm-hmm. Uh, and where are you now?
1: Right now, I'm pretty much, well, that was actually one of the main things where I got so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after I pretty much did my undergraduate school, um, I felt so deeply overwhelmed with the whole process that happened because there were so many people while I went through undergraduate school that would ask me about my learning disability, say that I couldn't actually read and write, um, would just be very unencouraging that I felt extremely defeated. And so therefore, I just stopped and I just wanted to curl up and cry, but I knew that I very much I love animals. Animals are my passion, um, but I so I knew I very much want to work with them, and so I decided um, that I would go ahead and start doing receptionist mm-hmm. <laughs> at a veterinary clinic, and so that's what I'm currently doing right now. And until I figure out the next steps, and of course, I'm still doing therapy which is helping a lot and which is very much boosting my self-esteem where Mm -hmm. it's like well no i went through undergraduate school i should be able to go to veterinary school
0: (laughs) what did you get your uh, degree in did you get Um, your degree
1: uh, yes and And i got it in general biology
0: okay um some other negative self-talk um or issues that that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on yet
1: so let me think more negative self-talk um that I am going to end up like my mother. That this mask of being happy and everything, in reality, it's just a mask. That maybe I am secretly a narcissist, and that I should—that all the empathy that I have and the compassion—it's all fake.
0: I worry about that too. <laughs> I I do. Uh, sometimes I'm like, what, what What if you're just kidding yourself, and <laughs> and this is you're just
1: Yeah, just exactly. Just one day you're just
0: going to realize that. You know, you're not a nice guy. You're just doing this for attention or whatever.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm just like a really well adjusted narcissist who knows how to put on a really good show and everybody likes the show.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? If that were the case, I'd say better to have a nice narcissist who puts on a show than a toxic narcissist that seeks to destroy.
1: Yeah, but then the show comes to an end. That's the thing. So eventually, if I'm this quote-unquote nice narcissist, I am going to break down.
0: <laughs> I think you and I are just totally fucking each other up right now. <laughs> I think we have gone down a rabbit hole that is going to land both of us in the psych ER. <laughs>
1: And then just both curled up and crying, being like, "I am a narcissist. There's there's no hope for me."
0: <laughs> I well, I know I am a narcissist. I just like to think that that I have qualities that are positive that offset it. And just from the little time I've spent around you, I can tell you, even if you are a narcissist, you have um, qualities um, that are non-narcissistic. That um, you you. Um, have a gentleness and a thoughtfulness um, that uh, and a sensitivity that I don't see in in people that are straight up narcissists. I think everybody has some degree of narcissism.
1: I I agree to that yeah. too.
0: Yeah,
1: and I so badly want to deflect all, all <laughs> your compliments. It's so
0: it's like a burlap <laughs> shirt, isn't it? It's yeah. just so. Uh, it gets it's- easier. I can tell you, as somebody who's been in therapy and support groups forever it gets easier taking compliments
1: Uh, it's like almost like somebody is like poking you like mm -hmm. that's why I feel like it's somebody like that I don't want to be touched, and somebody's just like poking me and poking me it's like I don't want to be touched but yet it's they're trying I know mentally they're trying to give me a hug but yet I feel it as like a poke and it's it irritates me
0: (laughs) the reason why it would always irritate me is because I wanted to scream but you don't know me you don't really know me you don't know the bad things about me you don't know you know what a selfish dick I can be uh, I
1: will 100% relate to that And so so many ways, because like if somebody is like, oh, my gosh, you're so smart. I'll just be like, oh, like, really, if I'm so smart, why did I fail this exam? Or if I'm so smart, why can't I understand this paragraph? Well, how come I have to read it five times? Like, you'll understand what's really going on.
0: And you know what that is, according to Dr. Alan Rappaport, who wrote this amazing article called co-narcissism, is that is one of the mental affectations of the children of narcissists is they grow up with black and white thinking. Yeah. So you think if I failed an exam, I can never do anything intelligent.
1: 100%. Like that is definitely my main way of thinking and it doesn't help that it's like I'm very aware it's like oh well I do have two learning disabilities and the system isn't set up for me so why should I try? You know, and it's like no I I need to actually try. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, and therapy is teaching me that, but I have such a black and white way of thinking, and I was always taught to think in black and white, that part of me is just like, no, just give up. Just don't even try.
0: <laughs> so give me some snapshots of, uh, and this is particularly because you grew up in Oakland in mm-hmm. the 90s. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, is a pretty street place to live in America.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you had this push and pull between this conservative family and this really exciting
1: liberal, yeah,
0: liberal, edgy, uh, you know, rap, uh, was, was entering a kind of a, it, it the glory days of rap finding itself and hip hop and, and, and Oakland is, is, you know, considered one of the, yeah. one of the meccas of style and culture and authenticity, and then here you are.
1: Stuck right in between. <laughs> right
0: in between. Talk about that. Give me some snapshots of what it, what it, what it, it was, was like. We, you know, you it got was kids
1: confusing, next- and it was really stressful, and I found that, I had to really edit myself with who I was talking with. If I was talking with my parents, I would have to use very, very proper English. If I was talking with a friend, I can't use very proper English. I will have to use slang, you know? And so I realized very early on, I had to adjust my behavior depending on who I was interacting with and that very much set up the stage of me being a total people pleaser.
0: And who am I? I know I I know who to be if I know who you need me to be.
1: Exactly.
0: But who the fuck am I when you're not around?
1: <laughs> exactly. 100%. And, 100%. And so that's how like cuz it was it was very awesome. and It was very great. And I would always see people, especially like African American women, just walking down, just totally owning who they are. And I remember as a child, I was, I always wanted that. I wanted to just freely walk down the street without mentally thinking about who am I going to run into? What am I going to say? How am I carrying myself right now? Or like, what, 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 if somebody was looking at me right then and now, what would they think of me?
0: What are the What are the potential criticisms that it's, That is always the first thing in my brain. Every moment is how can I be attacked here?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that that was definitely part of it. And I just I loved that. I loved it when I see like pretty much any women just walking down the street, being carefree. And I would see that all the time. And I wanted that. But I, but then I was stuck in this black and white thinking and i just could not get there
0: it was too scary to to try
1: it it was terrifying it was very very terrifying because in a sense you just have to lose control and just be yourself and i don't know who i am and i love controlling everything so that's pretty much out of the question
0: did you have any secret heroes that you could never let your parents know uh, somebody that that you were looked up to
1: um One of my secret heroes was actually my third grade elementary teacher. And she was a big hero to me just because, one, her style of teaching was completely different. And looking back at it now, it's probably because like I didn't know I had two learning disabilities. And that's why I was like, this is great. I actually understand. Yes. But also because of the fact that Every time we would come in, she would always ask us, how are you feeling today? And she was one of the first people in my life that I can actually recall that she would consistently always ask me, how are you feeling? When we would walk into the classroom she'll say hi good morning like blank you know and be like how are you feeling today and she was
0: and, interested in how you were yeah, feeling. yeah she
1: was very interested and we would talk about it and if we wanted to you know continue the conversation we can come back in lunch and just sit down and talk
0: what, what was her name do you remember
1: um no,
0: actually. <laughs> okay.
1: It's her. I always called her Miss L. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I remember is Miss L, even though, of course, her name, she actually has an actual last name. That's all right. But I remember Miss L just being very open and very kind and warming, and she actually cared about me. And that's why she was always my secret hero is because she was one of the few people in my life for that short time that if I was like, oh, I have a really bad day, she'll be like, oh, why do you have a bad day? Let's talk about it. You know?
0: It's amazing to think what it would be like to have a, a, a parent. Yeah. Like that.
1: that. That would have been a dream come true. If I had a parent like that, that where I can actually just come home and be like, you know what, today was really stressful. And they'll be like, oh, what happened, sweetie? Like, let's talk about it. Rather than like, oh, you think your day is stressful? Like, one of the things that my mom loved to do, which also drove me insane, is if I started complaining about my day, she would always refer back to, well, you're you're lucky to be born in the U.S. because back in Eritrea, I did not have this or that or this. It's
0: hard to trump that. <laughs> yeah. But it's not a contest.
1: But it was know? always and, a contest. And a kid
0: doesn't know how to say this isn't a contest. Exactly. You're my parent. You chose to bring me into this situation and your obligation is to make me feel safe.
1: Yeah, which to be brutally honest, I always felt like I was in competition with her. I realized that I spoke a lot about my mom, but I didn't speak so much about my dad. And so it was very interesting growing up because the relationship with my mom, I always felt fear towards her. With my dad, we would always clash and we'll always get into a fight, then we'll, for- we'll make up, we'll forget into a fight and we'll make up. That was always that consistent pattern. And it wasn't until I went to therapy that I realized that His one of his main, uh, like mantras in life is forgive and forget. Like, he Mm -hmm. truly believes that, which is very problematic because you can't really heal from that if you're forgiving and actually forgetting. forgetting. Yeah, exactly.
0: Forgiving's good,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, forgiving's fine, but if you're completely forgetting and just like letting letting everything go, that's fine. And I realized one of the things we would always fight about is I would always fight about something that my mom would say to me in his presence. And I would just get irritated that he wouldn't stand up for me.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's shitty.
1: Yeah. And so it wasn't until I learned what codependency was that I was like, Oh, that's my dad.
0: (laughs) That was my dad too. Yeah. My dad too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, oftentimes went, why
1: am I not mad
0: at my dad? He was just standing there.
1: Yeah. And it was weird because a lot of times he'll just be standing there. And a lot of times he'll be irritated that I was even questioning my mom or questioning her authority. So he'll get angry with me.
0: You know, I think part of the power of the narcissist is they have so much energy that they are willing to go toe to toe with you and after you've en- endured enough of those toe to toe battles where they wear you out you just wind up giving in because you know that they are so fucking stubborn you don't want to spend the next 20 minutes yeah exiting at the same point that you are right now which is you're wrong they're right and so might as well just
1: 100% put your
0: head down and you know, go along with it and yeah. i and I think the spouse of the narcissist becomes that, and then the child I think generally either becomes like the spouse or becomes the problem child, the rebeller the you know the whatever yeah. whatever the other route is, but I think you and I both became the uh the kind of the codependent,
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it wasn't until I started really looking at myself that I was like, "Ooh, I'm actually pretty codependent myself. (laughs) It's like being a massive people pleaser, having put on this mask, like Mm -hmm. any criticism. For the longest time, I always took criticism as like, oh, that's that's one way I can fix my mask and I can really put on a better show Mm -hmm. rather than like people being like, hey, you need to cut this out. (laughs)
0: Uh, And then I was shocked to learn that when I got into a long-term relationship, um, I became mean. I became mean um, and critical. And all the things that I hated my mom for doing, uh, I found myself doing.
1: I, I just became really emotionally distant. Like yeah. there was no reaching me whatsoever. If
0: you work hard enough, you can become mean. <laughs>
1: you just have
0: to put your mind to it.
1: I I think so. I'm. I just need to keep climbing up there.
0: <laughs> um, anything else before we do uh, fears and loves?
1: Um, I think that was it. Yeah. You I, feel
0: like you kind of uh, talked about your, gave a picture of your.
1: Yeah, that that's pretty okay. much my household. Just very black and white, codependent dad narcissistic mom yeah. you know, all that happiness
0: <laughs> uh give me some some fears
1: um so let me see um so i said this one before but i fear that ev- every hurtful and negative thought that my parents had about me was right so just something as simple as i can't cook to i'll never be uh i'll never be a quote-unquote full enough woman. Like I'll never be womanly enough to get wow. their approval.
0: Wow, that's a that's a deep one. Um, I'm afraid I talked about too much uh, too much about myself in this episode.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. But then I'm also very codependentish. <laughs> so, so you're going to say that, <laughs> exactly. even if you
0: found me to be a complete pain in the ass. But go ahead.
1: Um, let me see. Um, so my dog is 18. His name is Joey, and one of my biggest fears is that. Um, I'll come home and he'll already have passed without me telling him how much I loved him and how much he meant so dearly to me.
0: You're going to make me cry because Herbert is about 13 right now. And yeah, he's, I think he's really, really slowing down. And every time I come in the house, I'm worried.
1: Yeah, same here. Uh, That's, that's my exact fear. And every time I leave the house, I always tell him that I love him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and he's my best friend just because of that fear where I don't want to come home and he's already passed. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's definitely a massive fear of mine. Um, and another one, is, um, my next fear is I fear that I'm not being able to or realizing that my parents are suffering and and dying because of it. Like I can't help them. They are truly suffering and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. And that slowly drives me insane.
0: <laughs> it's It's hard. It's hard. Uh, when you feel like you're responsible for other people's pain. It's its own prison that you put yourself into, and you're sitting there with the key (laughs) going, won't somebody (laughs) please let me out?
1: Exactly. The key is very clearly in my hand, and I'm now realizing it's like, oh, I have the key.
0: But you'd understand, if I use this key, it would be very mean of me.
1: Yeah, To let myself
0: out of this prison. It would be very selfish of me.
1: It's so selfish. Like, oh, my gosh. No, I can never let myself yeah. out.
0: <laughs> uh, let's let's jump to uh, some loves.
1: Sure. Um, so some loves would be. Um, I love being able to express myself through like dance and writing. I recently started dancing, and it's it means a lot to me because I was always told, you know, as a weird little child, I can't dance. You know, which is also really weird because, like, as African American, they're like, oh, you can dance, you know? But yeah, at the same time, like, throughout my family, they're like, no, you can't dance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that must feel nice, though, when you, when you, uh, you know, when you're when you're dancing and yeah. you and you feel like you're clicking with something.
1: It's so liberating. I feel so liberated and be like, Yes, I can. Like I don't know why you looked at me and just said that. I, mm. I will never understand that. But no, I can truly do it.
0: Yeah. It, 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 when you find something where you can physically express yourself, it for me it is it was the, the earliest time I was ever able to love my body and love myself and and not have any question about it. Like, oh, yeah, that was good, what I just did. That felt good, what I just did. Um, yeah. It was... Yeah, go no,
1: ahead. I definitely... Yeah. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. Um, my next one, of course, it's about my dog, where it's like, I love the feeling of when I'm cuddling with him um, and... I just have Netflix going, and we're both cuddling, and it's just as if time has officially stopped, and it's just me and him Mm -hmm. and Netflix.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially if they decide to curl up on a place where you're both just going to be stationary and your noses aren't going to be more than about six inches apart.
1: Yeah. Well, it's very interesting because my dog... He likes to cuddle, but he doesn't like to cuddle, so he'll mm-hmm. always readjust mm-hmm. so at one moment I'll be nose nose with him, one moment he'll just like stick his butt in my face, then it'll be his paw or his mm-hmm. tail, and yeah. so like he's always readjusting, but like we very much love cuddling <laughs> uh,
0: I love uh, certain songs from the sixties or seventies, and I don't know what it was that that gives him this sound um but the mix of the song it sounds like it's being processed through silk and it there's just like a like an uh, oral oral aural um uh, softness yet clarity to it that um i'm going to totally geek out here that i think maybe it's somebody using a fairchild uh compressor limiter but it, it i know it when i hear it when i hear a song that just has that it i feel my blood pressure lower because the the um the tone of it is just so silky
1: that is amazing wow i'm almost, i'm very jealous now cuz <laughs> i've never heard that
0: <laughs> um research the the uh, fairchild limiter they are, they don't make them anymore and if you can find one they're about i don't know i think starting around 30 grand and they're the holy grail of analog, um, uh, audio processing (laughs) gear and, uh, gazillions of hits in the fifties through eighties, probably even today, uh, were, this would be the last piece of gear that the sound would go through before it was put onto CD or, or tape. And it's, it's, um, there's something about it is that's considered mag- magical, and I always wonder when I hear a song that has that silky sound, um, I wonder if that was going through a, a fair child, but I love, my, my point being, I love the feeling like how, in my ears of it yeah. just feels like silk, like chocolate silk in my ears.
1: No, definitely. Yeah.
0: Give me one more love.
1: Um, I love when I'm able to help my friend through a difficult time and just being fully present for them and just being there, you know, and just being able to hear them and validate their feelings and just being needed. Like, that's one of my favorite feelings, but then I'm also, like, really codependent. So that's what I go up. <laughs> <off. laughs>
0: but the cool thing is, is when you can be needed in that moment and you realize that you're not actually being codependent you're just showing up for a friend yeah and you're doing it in a healthy way
1: that's one of my favorites it's like whether they're just like oh i just need to vent and i'm just fully present for them just yeah. to hear them you know that i just love that i'm not like you know trying to fix them where it's just right. like yeah I, i'll totally hear you right yeah. now
0: well that's nice and that's more more people uh we could use more people that that do that that just listen and don't and don't try to fix um thanks johanna anytime many many thanks to uh to johanna it was uh, it was great talking to her um i always love when i can learn about a place in uh, the world that i've never been to and somebody can paint a good picture uh of it it's um it's nice before I read some surveys, uh, I want to give some love to our sponsor, Madison Reed. Uh, Madison Reed started with a simple mission to make a luxurious at-home hair color with ingredients you can feel good about. Madison Reed is a salon-quality hair color with an authentic personal touch, and they're so passionate about you loving your color, expert colorists support you every step of the way. You know, I almost, instead of colorist, said colonists, And that would have been a completely different read. Uh, Madison Reed brings the prestige pampered salon experience to the time-saving, money-saving convenience of your home. Experience shiny, beautiful, natural-looking hair color with Madison Reed. It's made with ingredients that you can feel good about. It's the first ever six-free permanent hair color, free of ammonia, parabens, resorcinol, PPD, phthalates, and gluten. It's crafted in Italy, just outside of Milan, and uh, their luxurious hair color is infused with nutrient rich keratin, argon, I don't even know what argon is, but I'm a fan. Argon oil and ginseng root extract to protect and pamper your hair like never before. Madison Reed delivers salon quality color. To the convenience of your own home. Choose from over 40 luxurious shades for every skin tone and hair texture. With 100% gray coverage and the support of Madison Reed expert colorists who will guide you every step of the way you can color with total confidence. Experience beautiful, healthy-looking hair with over 40 shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Try it, love it, satisfaction and happiness guaranteed. That is the beauty of Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade, again, at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the offer code HAPPY. Uh, there are a couple of different ways to support our uh, our show here. Uh, one of them would be to use uh, our sponsor's products. Um, at the very least, please go to their website and, and check it out. Um Another way you can support us um, financially is going to uh, our website, metalpod.com, and making either a one-time donation or, my favorite, becoming a monthly uh, PayPal donor for as little as uh, 5 bucks a month. It may not seem like a lot to you, but it uh, means a lot to me and to the podcast, and it helps keep it going, especially during times uh, when things get a little uh, rough here financially. Uh, You can support us by uh, shopping through our Amazon search portal. If you're going to buy anything at Amazon, just uh, enter through that. And then when you buy something, they give us a little bit of money and it doesn't make your product any more expensive. You can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking. And uh, sometimes then we land on the homepage of iTunes, and then a lot of people see our logo, and they click on it, and they start listening to our podcast. Um, you can also support us non-financially by uh, spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That's a, a really, really uh, big help. So any or, or all of those things, um, but let's be honest. If you just get out of bed, that's that's your Cub World Series victory, because you probably haven't gotten out of bed in 108 years, and uh, that underwear is not looking too good let's now that I've planted that that beautiful image in your head let's get to some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by bipolar bear, and he writes about his anxiety like I'm breathing through a straw at high altitude about being bipolar, being so ashamed of the stupid things I've done while manic that I want to tear myself into two parts, past self and present self, and beating the former to death with the latter snapshot from his life, running away from the psych ward for the fourth time because I was psychotic and thought the nurses were trying to gas me. I climbed over fences and through gardens before finally running through a muddy field pursued by, uh, it says figmental, um, I think, is that a word, figmental? Um, I think he means, uh, I think oh, somebody just sent me a message. Uh, I think it means somebody who is like a figment of his imagination. Anyway, now that I've killed the flow of that uh, muddy field pursued by uh, figmental SAS soldiers, I then stumbled upon a workmen's station and smashed one of the doors to pieces in search of some clue that would save me from my captors. I eventually found myself sitting in the back seat of a police van in resignation, covered with mud and missing a shoe, on my way back to the psych ward and my seemingly malevolent jailers. Well, that has got to be really traumatizing for somebody. Um, I actually just had a friend recently who uh, had a involuntary um, commitment to a uh, psych unit, and um, she was in psychosis, paranoid psychosis, and uh, a group of us were trying to get through to her and letting her know that people, you know, weren't the FBI wasn't following her, and you know all these. And she just could not accept that what she was experiencing was not reality and it's heartbreaking. And now she's lost a job and her family has can't take it anymore. It's, it is hard if the person does not want to get help. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, ABC Pink. And she is 15. She's straight. She was raised in a slightly or is being raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My parents, mostly my mom, comment on my body a lot, mostly innocent comments like, nice figure, or I wish I had a body like yours. I used to get dressed in front of them until I was around eight. My mom sometimes slapped my ass as I was putting on my underwear. My granddad used to walk in the room uh, whilst I was in the bath, sometimes picking the lock. He comments on my weight and body a lot too. Um the the uh thing about your granddad uh picking the lock to get into the bathroom to look at you, um that is absolutely a form of of sexual abuse. And um you know, the stuff that your mom did, I I, I don't know I guess you could classify that, but what what matters, like I say a gazillion times is it doesn't matter what the classification is. What matters is how does it make you feel and do you if you express it to that person and they still don't respect your boundary with it and it involves your your body that is a form of that's a form of a sexual violation so give weight to what has happened uh to you and is sounds like is happening to you uh, darkest thoughts sometimes i think about getting a restraining order on certain family members or people i know sometimes i even think of hiring someone to kill or brutally murdering people who have hurt me or messed me up in the past. I know I'd never do any of these things, but I imagine them a lot. I imagine myself inviting someone I dislike to a local pond late at night and drowning them in it, holding their head into the water and feeling their body turn limp and lifeless, or seeing them on a train platform and waiting for the perfect time to push them onto the track so I can see them struggle before the train comes and hits them. These are all thoughts, and I know I'd never be stupid enough to actually act upon them. Um... And I think everybody thinks thoughts that they're not comfortable with. And it's our brain's way of trying to deal with discomfort, fear, anxiety, abuse. Um, anyway, darkest secrets. A while ago, I was at the cinema with my best friend at the time. He was a male and we used to be together a while ago, but we stayed friends. I had feelings for him a long time ago, but never opened up or told him. I went to the cinema and sat down. Halfway through the film, I heard him unzipping his jeans. I look over and he's about to pull his underwear down until I say, "'What are you doing?' He started laughing and said, "'You only invited me here to suck my dick, didn't you?' I felt immediately shameful, like I was using him, even though I knew deep down he was using me. He grabbed my hand and moved it to his penis, putting it under his boxers. I felt his erect penis and my hand froze. "'Come on, just do it.' I kept trying to move my hand, and he kept moving it back. He eventually stopped after about 15 minutes. I never talk about it because I don't feel like it was actual sexual assault because nothing technically happened, but it still messed me up. I feel weak for even letting him talk to me the way he did, and the fact I stayed friends with him for six months after this is shameful. You have nothing to be ashamed about. Um, you you had been... Um, You have had your boundaries violated since you were a tiny, tiny child, and kids have to be taught by parents how to be autonomous over their body, how to draw boundaries. So you are not at fault here. These are people not respecting your boundaries, and whatever name you give to them isn't as important as you having compassion for yourself and knowing that you are not a baby, you are not an exaggerator, you are not a liar, and you are not doing this for attention. And if anybody tells you that when you share this with them, tell them to go fuck themselves. And thank you for your survey. You sound like a sweet kid. Uh, Kevin sent me a uh, an email, and he writes... Let's see what he writes. All right. That's some tension I'm creating right there. Uh, What would you say to someone, okay, it's me, who is skeptical of certain, for lack of a better term, hippy-dippy, new-agey-feeling therapeutic techniques? Uh, For depression, anxiety, and self-doubt specifically. Uh, I'm talking exercises like positive affirmations in the bathroom mirror in the morning. I did this. I felt silly and embarrassed. Journals, letter writing, and all that sort of stuff. I know it works because I've heard people refer to it on the show and in my support group. And I'm envious of those people who can make something like that work. But for me, it always felt disingenuous. I'm seeing a new therapist on Monday. Long story short, I moved, I'm unemployed down here. Medicaid came through and I jumped on the chance to get back into therapy. And Part of me is afraid that you'll want to do those kinds of exercises and I won't want to just discount them out of hand, but it's like my specific personality type won't even let me give them a chance from the jump despite my best efforts. And that, thank you uh, for that email because that's a really, really important question. New agey shit can really be a turnoff. Like one of my favorite books, I think one of the most profound books ever written is a book that I've talked many times on this podcast about called A New Earth by Eckhart Tole. There's some new agey shit in there that I roll my eyes at when I when I read it. But it's it is just the it doesn't take away from the fact that there is truth in there. And um so that's what I would encourage you to do is try something. Try it a half a dozen times, maybe a dozen times. And if it's still not clicking after that, you know, maybe maybe try something something else. But it is a personal choice. It's this weird, there's this weird line between it being something that clicks with you personally and you being open-minded enough to try something to give it a, a, a real chance um, to work. But you're not alone in that, man. And especially if if you've been kind of, if you've formed this hardened cynical shell, which I think a lot of us who've been hurt have, it's really hard to do things that feel new agey and, uh, you know, hippy-dippy. So I hope that makes sense. This is an awful some moment filled out by girl and she writes for reasons that would take a book to explain and maybe someday I will write it I found myself in the position of working as an escort for basic survival as much as I disliked my main duties it didn't take long for me to realize that my self esteem had dramatically improved in addition I felt a sense of autonomy for the first time in my life despite being in my early 30s and having been out on my own since 17. Even my parents noticed the difference in me, so much so that I had to make up a lie to explain it. That is, that is awfulsome. For those of you that are new to the podcast, awfulsome is a term we use for something that is uh, fucked up. But there's also a part of it that is like uh, either ironically funny or um, beautiful. L shares uh, about her depression. It's like drinking coffee with friends and describing how good it is even though you can't smell anything. Snapshot from her life, sitting in a bench with no one around, too depressed to even walk or go home, lying down on the bench paralyzed and realizing that there's no safe space on this earth earth to go to. Um I understand how you feel, man. I understand. But there are safe places on the earth to go to. And what sucks is sometimes they're hard to find, but they're all around. They're all around. And um, for a lot of us, uh, I would say probably for the majority of the listeners to this podcast, that place was not home. That safe place was not home. And so we, I think we tend to extrapolate and assume that the rest of the world is going to be exactly like how we were raised at home and other people are going to view us the way we were viewed in our home. MJ uh, filled out a shame and secret survey and she's straight in her 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment and was the victim of sexual, sexual abuse and never reported it. Oh no, did report it. I was sexually abused by my brother for many years. I finally reported it about eight years ago. Uh, She's been emotionally abused uh, and physically abused by her father. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? People feel I should hate my dad and my brother, but I do not. I love them both. It's hard, and I feel like I shouldn't love them. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this, because this highlights how complicated people are and our relationships with them and how... People can have both good and bad qualities, and when the bad qualities make it so painful to be around them, um, it's heartbreaking to not be in touch with the good qualities of them um, or vice versa. Uh, And what you feel is what you feel, and fuck what other people think. Uh, darkest thoughts. I'd rather die than deal with this. And I feel like I should have never reported it because my mother has lost a son and I feel it's my fault. God, that's another thing survivors do is we blame ourselves. We blame ourselves. We are the first person that we blame. And I don't need to say it, but I'm going to say it. It's not your fault. You're taking care of yourself and fuck what, what your mom, if your, if your mom can't side first with the victim, in something, or like I like to say, survivor. Um, she's unconscious. She she is lost in her own reality. Darkest thoughts. I oh I read that. Uh, darkest secrets. I was also raped when I was forty, and that had also caused my family to deco me distant. Um, I'm not sure what that means. D E C O. Distant. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Dom sub role play, and I feel like that makes me a weak person. Not at all. That has no, no. I've talked to uh, people before who worked in um, the S and industry or wrote articles about it, and they said some of their um, biggest clients are people in huge positions of power that people that like to be subs because they want to experience something that is the opposite of what they're having in their daily lives. So it's it's has nothing to do with your morals. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I hate that my body reacted to the abuse and made me think I liked it. Your body and your soul are two separate entities and just because you got aroused does not mean that it didn't damage your soul. Um, And that's a really common response that survivors beat themselves up for, uh, myself included. Thank you for sharing that. This is shared by... And uh, she writes about her depression. Every moment my brain chooses not to do any of the things that would make my life better. Oh, Every moment, my brain chooses not to do any of the things that would make my life better. Snapshot from her life. Last night, I lay in bed with my husband, and he was telling me something about his work. I desperately needed him to shut up. I was sure if he didn't stop talking, I would lose my mind. I just wanted him to hold me. What about saying, Can I, Can I interrupt you? Um... I'm having a hard time focusing on what you're saying right now, because I'm just in a lot of pain and I just need you to hold me. Cause he's he is not um he's it sounds like he is not intuitively in touch with what's going on with you. And he's probably n overnight not gonna suddenly be able to to do that. So um I think you're gonna have to take that scary step of advocating for yourself and that step could be the thing that a makes your relationship better or b gives you enough clarity on it that you can make a sound decision on whether or not to stay in a relationship with somebody who doesn't have the same desire for intimacy that you do this is an awful moment filled out by goddess of hyperbole and light And uh, she writes, At age 17, I was playing Mary Magdalene in my prep school show that ended up touring the East Coast, including Broadway, at Circle and the Square Theater for a few nights. Across the street was a seedy bar called Pork Pie Hat, uh, where pimps and whores and con men and other unsavory types hung out. A year later, after my father died in a drunken car accident, I ran away to New York City, fell in love with a pimp. Johnny Slim, and was still stripping and turning tricks a little. Uh, By the way, we all have a little crush on Johnny Slim. Uh, One particular day at the Pork Pie Hat, I was tipsy hanging out with Johnny, looking across where my old privileged self had been so celebrated for playing a woman largely believed to be a whore. The weirdness of it hit me hard. Even weirder that my middle name and chosen confirmation names are Mary and Magdalene can't make this shit up. Thank you for sharing that. Brambles filled out a shame and secret survey, and um, she's bisexual in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment um, uh, with moments of feeling safe and happy in between. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, My father, who I didn't grow up with past the age of three to four was accused of sexually abusing me. Nothing was ever proven or disproven, and I have no memory of anything. He claims nothing happened. I remember experimenting with other kids from the age of five to six on, and some of those times I really wonder if I was a perpetrator. By the way, a kid who is five to six is not a perpetrator. Um that's just not. They're, they are acting out on something that an adult has acted out on them. And even if the person who did it to them was another child, that other child, eventually it goes up the ladder to an adult who should know better and to not do that. Um, so forgive yourself. Uh, she's never been emotionally abused. Um, I don't know why she wrote that because in her next sentences, my stepfather was emotionally abusive. He was undiagnosed something, maybe bipolar, and in his tyrant phases, it was absolutely scary. And we, my brother, sister, and I never knew what to expect. He was never physically abusive. They gave spankings, but that was normal at the time. But he did get in our faces, red eyes bulging, spittle flying out of his mouth. The person I knew, completely gone in those moments. Really scary for a little kid. One time, he came at me so fast, and I was so scared, I fell back onto my lamp and broke it. He would kind of lunge at us when he was raging, but never hit us. And the environment we were brought brought into when my mom married him was a totally emotionally abusive household. It was a fundamentalist Christian commune in Alaska and then in North Carolina. It was very shaming and it fucked me up. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, fuck. When he was good and happy, it was so fucking good and happy. We would sing the Beatles, and he'd read to us and be silly and teach us languages and take us on vacations. He inspired us and taught us a lot, but that was only during those times which had been poisoned by all the other negative stuff. It's hard because he still occasionally tries to contact me. Uh, Mom and stepdad divorced when I was uh, 18. I'm 27 now. And I can't talk to him, but I can't explain why either. I don't know how he can't see that for himself. Like, how could I pretend none of that shit ever happened? That he didn't walk out one day when I was 18, but my little sister was 14, and never come back saying goodbye. He went back to the Christian commune in Alaska. That's hard, man. That is hard. That's Kind of like I read in the other survey, that complicated, complicated dark and light that humans, that humans can have. It's just amazing. I'm sending you some love. Darkest thoughts that I am worthless and hopeless and cannot or will not ever be able to give or receive love and friendship. You know, the fact that you listen to this podcast tells me there's a good chance, you know, that you're seeking uh, an emotionally a better life. Or your standards for podcasts are incredibly low. Darkest secrets, sexually touching my brother who is 13 months younger than me when we were kids. Well, you already heard what I had to say about that. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm a young girl between 12 and 14 and I'm having a sexual affair with an older man. Um, and in the parentheses, what would be considered statutory rape? Um, and, uh, I would like the total submission. Um, Again, that's a super common, super common fantasy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Not really sure on that one. I'm not sure what I would say to anyone or if it would be helpful or productive. What do you wish for? To overcome my dermatillomania, I dig into and pick my hands, fingers, and other center points on my body until calluses, calluses form and get to a place where I feel like all the trauma, etc. is really beginning to be a part of my past. If you share these things with others, yeah, I feel like I overshare, which I feel bad about sometimes, but I limit that mostly to the people in my life that I trust and are supportive of me, which I am lucky and very appreciative appreciative that I have. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. Like I wanted to write more but can't bring myself to, but also good but I want them to be red on hair, which I feel bad about. I like attention, but have anxiety. How does that work? Uh, that totally works. I'm a comedian uh, who loves attention, and I have anxiety. And I, I totally get that. And I did not read your uh, survey because of that. I actually, just uh, I read it because you had some, some points in there that I wanted to, uh, to make. L.K. shares about her depression. It's wanting to go home, but not knowing where home is. That is profound. That is Hall of Fame description of depression. Thank you for that, Al. Ella shares about her depression. Uh, Doing a back squat and my spotter consistently adding weight, but always unevenly snapshot from her life. I was sitting on a fluffy purple rug in my childhood bathroom with silent tears streaming down my face, wondering why I'm so depressed when I should be happy. I was graduating high school in less than a month and had a stable relationship, but I still couldn't find a reason to keep going. Well, I'm sending you some some love, and I hope you know how many people, how many people, feel that or have felt that, and you're so not alone. You're so not alone in that. Ella is... just rolled away from the microphone. Ella is a, uh, a teenager, by the way. Bass face. Uh, by the way, um, the surveys have gone from like maybe 60% uh, or, or 70% female to what seems now like like 90% female. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just wondering where, uh, where my dudes went, my bras. I hate that. I hate that word so much. Um, this is an awful sim moment and actually I'm going to hold off on that one. I'm going to read this one. I'm sorry. Potato Pancake filled out a shame and secret survey. And she's straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My first boyfriend was manipulative. He was charming and friendly and everyone liked him, but around me he slowly became controlling. He was my first sexual experience. It was consensual, but he would guilt trip me a lot into doing things I didn't want to do. He convinced me to have anal sex a couple times. Even though I said I didn't want to, I cried the whole time. Um, somebody who is... Taking advantage of your people-pleasing, and I'm going to assume he he knew that he could manipulate you into that, is already kind of on the border of being ab- abusive. Um, but when you're saying outright that that you don't want to do that act, and he's doing it and you're crying... There's no question that that is abusive. But again, regardless of what category it fits into, talk to somebody who's safe about what you're feeling. That shit is too heavy to try to push down Uh, She's been emotionally abused. The same boyfriend subtly told me what not to wear and who to talk to. I wasn't allowed to talk to other guys. I wasn't allowed to wear certain kinds of makeup. He never said mean things to me, but I always felt so nervous and scared of his moods. And that is exactly why he picked you. He saw it. He saw it in your eyes. He, That that is, you know, we. we grow up seeking out People who allow will allow us to play out our childhood traumas um, and so much of it we're not even conscious of um, we don't know and I hope that doesn't sound like i'm I'm blaming you. I'm talking about him picking you out and you not recognizing. That he was unsafe because I guarantee if you had been raised in a home that was really safe and where boundaries were respected and you had a good role model of how your uh, dad talked to your mom and your mom talked to your dad, um, you would not have probably kept dating this guy once you saw um, that he was controlling and abusive. I mean, that's just my two cents. I'm not a therapist. I did cook spaghetti on TBS for 16 years, and I occasionally wore a chef hat and and an apron, and we did use nonstick cookware, and that has to count for something. I am not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, he was my first real boyfriend and he was charismatic, fun, and exciting. We had good times, which makes it very complicated because I could have said no or left him or stood up for myself, but I let him walk all over me. And I would say you also didn't have somebody preventing somebody from walking over them modeled for you probably as a kid. So cut yourself some slack and and hopefully... You know, I don't know, learn something from it, Uh, recognize, uh, be on the lookout for... Oh, shut up, Paul, I'm just fucking... How can I be... (laughs) How did I go from the celebration of the Cubs winning their first World Series in 108 years to just shitting on myself? You know why? Because I'm just that talented. Darkest secrets, I steal pain medication from my mom who has cancer. It's the only thing I look forward to. Well, with all that stuff stuffed down in you that you experienced and you blaming yourself for it, who wouldn't want to self-medicate? But it's going to, the ability of pain meds to make that pain go away is going to become less and less and is going to become more and more problematic. And I've had friends go through withdrawal from opiates and it is fucking brutal. It lasts for months and it's why you see the heroin epidemic, uh, now because people, uh, so many doctors prescribe, uh, opiates for pain, like they're handing out candy, um, people don't know what they're getting into before they realize it they're addicted to it and the withdrawal is so brutal they start trying to get pills from other places then they realize what a hassle it's become because their doctor won't give them anymore and they've run out of different doctors to lie to and next thing you know the only place they can stave off the withdrawal is heroin and then they overdose it is a an epidemic going through our country Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It depends. Sometimes bestiality, sometimes a gangbang, sometimes non-consensual, sometimes pedophilia. It makes me disgusted at myself to share this. Do not be disgusted by it. Those are things that other people uh, think about. Some people even um role-play with another consenting partner and have uh, fun, healthy sex, exploring that part of their brain with somebody else. As long as you are not... um Engaging somebody who is not consenting, um, you're not doing anything wrong. Embrace the crazy cartoons in our brain, I say, if it doesn't lead to you hurting someone. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my dad how important he was to me and how I still use his approval as motivation to do things. He died, so I'll never get to tell him. Uh, what do you wish for? I wish I would get a terminal illness so I could die in peace. You know what I would love? I would love for you to keep getting help and let that part of you that is mean to yourself die. That would be better because then you'd still get to stick around and be an awesome person who clearly is empathetic and sensitive. And then you can help other people and be the friend that you needed when you were in pain. Summer Dawn writes about her ADHD. Uh, It makes me feel like a crappy computer with too many programs running at once. I can't keep all the programs running, so I go into computer whirring sound slash overheating mode and everything just freezes up. That is fantastic. Hall of Fame. H-O-F. Speaking of Hall of Fame, I can't imagine how many of the players on the 2016 Cubs are future Hall of Famers. If they keep playing the way that they are playing, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Did I mention the Cubs won the World Series? And I freely admit that I am not a diehard Cub fan. Um, I, with the exception of hockey, I don't really follow other sports until a team, uh Chicago team looks like they're going to be in the playoffs or have a shot to do something good. And then I start watching them and people would say, well, that's really shitty. That's not a real fan. You're just a bandwagon fan to which I would say, no, I'm efficient with my sports viewing and you probably like frosted pop tarts. I hope, by the way, I haven't uh, drugged the uh, podcast down with the uh, firestorm of Pop-Tart controversy I've ignited. Snapshot from uh, this guy's life. He calls himself In Search of Focus. And he deals with depression, ADD, um, and procrastination. And he writes, I found a job... I might like doing one that I feel confident I could do. The ad said apply in person. I drove by six times this afternoon without being able to will myself to pull in and apply. I think so many of us understand that so deeply and relate to that. That is one of the most frustrating things about anxiety and depression is it's like it's like you have the recipe you have the food in front of you. You're starving and you can't turn the stove on or move your arms. I think I just did a strong in a sentence right there. That was Hall of Fame. See, the reason I did that, that was my one chance to call myself Hall of Fame. Jen shares a shame and secret survey. Uh, well part of one she's uh, asexual in her 20s raised in a stable and safe environment never been sexually abused not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused darkest thoughts I find myself hoping to be killed I get off work at midnight and walking through the dark parking lot of the mall takes a few minutes someone was shot there about a year ago and I hope every day that the next person will be me darkest secrets. I don't have a teaching credential. I couldn't find the motivation to actually do the work. My parents think I completed the program. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I have no sexual fantasies. I feel like I'm lying, even though I know it's the truth. Have you shared these things with others? No, my therapist doesn't know. I'm afraid she'll judge me and everyone else will be disappointed. This is why I wanted to read this survey. Jen, Please share that with your therapist. Your therapist specifically put in all of those hours of studying because they want to help you. Because they are a non-judgmental person. That's that's why people get into um, the the helping business is because they want to help. They want to comfort. Yeah, there's some sick fucks out there and some bad ones. But the majority of them are good people that want to spread their love, compassion, and insight around. And she will not judge you. And if she does, she's a fucking terrible therapist and she is to be honestly pitied. Any therapist that would would do that But I I just encourage you. I encourage you to do that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Forced to Smile. And she writes, 10 years ago when I was 14 on the verge of suicide, I decided to run away. So I started packing up my suitcase. Just when I zipped it up, I realized that I haven't finished the little muffler I knitted for my baby brother who was four at the time. I was seriously attached to him, thinking that he was mine, largely because of my mother's emotional neglect. I dropped to the floor and cried, holding on to the unfinished muffler, because I couldn't leave my brother with my mother. I started knitting again in tears. That is one of the most powerful things I've read in five years of doing this podcast. That is so i don't even have a word for it what a beautiful soul you have what a beautiful soul you have and i hope you're i hope you're healing cuz i would imagine somebody that's gone through what you went through having to be a parent while you were a kid, um, I would imagine that there's there's got to be some some codependency struggles in there or something or because um, it sounds like you're old enough now to be out of the house. But anyway, that, that was a thank you for sharing that. This is uh, an e- email I got. Um, I'm Mrs. Levi Vera, an aging widow suffering from cancer uh, leukemia am confined in a nursing home. I inherited fund from my late loving husband the sum of $9.3 million which he deposited in bank. There's not a name of a bank. It just says in bank and bank is capitalized. So I'm going to assume that it's the first bank that there ever was, which means this is probably on the up and up. I need a good, honest person who will use these funds for charity works. Uh I, Well, the question is, do you consider me buying a sports car charity? We'll talk about that. I want this fund to be used for charity work and for the propagation of God's work because I have no child to inherit it. 15% will be for your compensation for doing this work. Please, if you will be willing to carry out the project, kindly reply for more information. Thanks and God bless you. I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to have to see what my Wednesday looks like. But I, I've i got to think that 15% of $9.3 million, I'm not good at math. i got to assume that's not even $100, which, to be honest, is offensive. And I don't really care. If you're going to throw that low of a percentage at me, um, enjoy the nursing home. I hope that doesn't come across as harsh, but um, I bid you adieu, Miss Levi Vera. This is this I got from this is an email. This is an a uh, actual email. Oh, the other one was an actual email, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, shut up. Rewind. Delete. Oh yeah. Uh, Zena writes, you just got to think of the frosted Pop-Tarts as dessert instead of a breakfast food. Unfrosted Pop-Tarts are more of a breakfast pastry, while the frosted ones are like an overly sweet treat. Both serve their purpose, though the purposes are not the same despite their marketing. With that said, I would rather not eat than be forced to consume an unfrosted Pop-Tart. And I wrote back, Zena, I'm tempted to cast you to the bowels of hell but that would only serve to help perfectly toast your wretched frosted pop tart I cast you to the north pole where your sad fingers will struggle to open your horribly oversweet shit sack I meant to say shit snack am I overreacting no I'm holding back because there's a good chance you just ate one and are in a sad sugar coma and I don't want to kill you And finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Six Piece Chicken McNobody. I love her name. When I was 11 years old, I told my mother in a public space that I wanted to become a prima ballerina. I had been taking ballet classes for most of my childhood, and it was a real dream. She snorted and replied, you're too fat and your boobs are too big to be a ballerina. I refused to go to ballet after that. I was too ashamed of my body. I was embarrassed that I thought I could do it and felt like everyone had known I wasn't going to be a, quote, real ballerina except for me. Awful, right? Years later, I'm in college and I watch a video of Hannah Baines, a heavyset, very successful ballerina. I very nearly cried. I had this glorious moment of thinking, see, fuck you, mom, anyone can dance. And even though it wasn't me, my dream did come true. Hannah Baines achieved it. But she made my dream come true, and I don't feel sad about what could have or would have been. I feel happy that my dream came true at all for anyone. When I showed my mother, she refused uh that she'd ever said anything like that to me, or I was, quote, remembering it wrong. Either way, she still wasn't impressed, describing Hannah as a, quote, one-hit-wonder type deal. I sighed dramatically, went into the next room, and blasted Mika's pop song, Big Girl, You Are Beautiful, on repeat, and felt my mother's disdain fill the house. Note to mom, I win. Hannah wins, and it's all there in black and white, clear as crystal. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. (laughs) Thank you for that. And uh, by the way, I want to thank those of you that reached out with your support after the contentious last couple of episodes of the podcast. it, it it was really uh wow, well, I think I just distorted the microphone. It was really, really um touching and um just reminded me that I'm not alone. Um it's I'm I'm uh, I'm as big of a mess as as anybody. Um and I think sometimes when I get behind the microphone to do this, um, I forget that. And I forget that I need your emotional support, um, as well as the support of my friends and, you know, my wife and support groups and all that stuff. But it, um, I don't know, I'm having trouble finding the words to express how nice it was, how good it felt, and um, how moved I was and am by it. Except for those of you that enjoy frosted Pop-Tarts, in in which case, um, canceling your monthly donation would be money well spent because you're animals. You're animals. I'm sure you have hooves. Um, the fact that you're able to walk around on two legs is a shock. Um, and anybody listening to this podcast for the first time, um, I totally understand if you never want to tune back in. I'm Frankly, I'm shocked that you've listened this long and um, I don't know what, if you're going to listen to another one, I don't know what I'm going to have to do to make you go I I can't listen any longer because I don't know what the fuck this guy is talking about. I don't know when he's being serious. I don't know when he's fucking around. Um, To you, I say, I bid you adieu. Before that, I say, remember you're not alone. But before that, a big tip of my cap as I cross my legs on my grand piano. I look at my little baby pool and I say, good day.